This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article on vaping cessation with varenicline and counseling. Since helping people quit vaping is kind of a new thing, I think this article will set a benchmark against which future articles will be defined. So I'm really excited we're going to talk about it. How are you doing, John? I'm doing great. You know, end of summer, beginning of the school year for the kids. That's always really exciting. Kind of actually plays into our our article coming up here about vaping. So how about you? I'm doing well. It's the first week of school in our house as well. And I have a high school student. So I've been hearing a certain amount about teenage vaping. So this article is very relevant. So what's going on in addiction uh, news for you this week, Sonia? Well, I thought of you when I saw an article about new vape pens that are designed to look like highlighters just in time for back to school. So creating vapes specifically designed to be used in schools, I think, is a blatant attempt to get children addicted to vaping products. And I just, maybe I shouldn't be shocked, but I feel like our world does not need a whole new generation of people addicted to nicotine products. It just upsets me that we're, as a society, allowing this to develop. So I'm putting two links in the show notes to websites where you could learn more about how you could take action to protect kids from tobacco. One is from the Surgeon General. And the other is from the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. And they both have action items on their websites. Um, If you've wondered what you could do personally to help, especially just within your own home, if you're a parent, these websites are a great place to start. John, what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine news this week? You you literally stole my article this week. That was exactly what I was (laughs) going to present. Um, Kind of plays in with what we're going to talk about coming up here, but also um, just kind of like a theme in general. If you go online and actually look at, at this uh, vape pen, it's called the Highlight Office for e-cigarette. It's funny, I, I was looking at it and you know how your computer like thinks of what you're looking at and then gives you ads for the similar products? Mm-hmm. It was giving me ads for school supplies as kind of like the things feeding me to buy as I looked at this through Google. Sorry, Google, if I called you out for that. But I thought it was really interesting just because they look exactly like the highlighters that you would think that growing up you would have around the house. The article talked about at this point kind of rates of, of uh, e-cigarette use. It's almost 20% in high school students. And they talked about the fact that I didn't really know this, but the FDA really kind of put in regulation in 2020 about flavored products for tobacco. So I remember when I was in college, people would smoke like margarita or pina colada flavored cigarettes, or they'd have like candy cigarettes where they were um, flavored. And that kind of stopped in 2020. However, from 2020 to 2022, there's been a 50% increase in sales of these e-cigarette products that are flavored. So it's almost like we've just kind of like diverted this kind of group over to this other product. And if you look, go down the rabbit hole a bit, maybe while you're like Googling things in bed before bed, they have vapes and e-cigarettes that are like all different types of things. So there's ones that look like USB ports, mouses. There's ones that fit into your hoodie. There's ones that uh, look like a stick of chewing gum. So they're really kind of meant to be like discreet and for people to kind of hide the use. Really interesting. I don't know. I just feel bad because you and I, of course, we're a little bit biased in our experience. We spend hours and hours and hours each week trying to help people stop using these things. And all my patients say, I wish I'd never started. You know, no one's ever like, gosh, I'm glad I'm a smoker. Wish I'd started earlier. I only have 20 years under my belt. But if I'd started as a teenager, I could have had 30 years under my belt. Like no one says that. And so it's sad to think of all these people starting and thinking about the regret they'll feel 
in the future when they're forced to deal with the health outcomes of this. And I think the people who are producing these products really are culpable. Yeah, I think that the quote here I have is they said that um, that this highlight office for e-cigarette is not marketed to kids. They specifically use the word office in there to gear it towards young professional adults in the working place, which um, I think that's false news. Yeah, yeah, totally fake news there. I'm sure they'll give us a nasty gram on uh, Twitter. Yeah, if, if our audience includes the makers of the highlighter-shaped e-cigarette, maybe you should go back and take a good hard look at what you're doing with your lives. That's all I have to say. Probably making money. <laughs> on your boat. From your boat. <laughs> on, on, on your boat, eating your lobster. We're shaming you. So, John, uh, on that note, why don't you tell us about this article that you wanted to share? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this article tonight, mostly because I think that this is a topic that we use really is like unexplored territory for us. And I think for most people that kind of practice addiction medicine or substance use disorder treatment. So the article is entitled Renaclean and Counseling for Vaping Cessation, a Double-Blind, Randomized, Parallel Group, Placebo-Controlled Trial. And it's from BMC Medicine, July 2023. A little bit of background. Electronic cigarettes are becoming increasingly popular with people who smoke worldwide. Electronic cigarette users report buying them to abstain from smoking, relieve withdrawal symptoms, and continue to have a, quote, smoking experience with reduced health risks. Substantial evidence exists that due to the lack of combustion, electronic cigarettes contain substantially lower levels of harmful chemical exposure compared to classical combustible tobacco. Previous randomized control trials and observational trials have shown that electronic cigarette use can be an effective method of smoking cessation. Despite their use for smoking cessation, data regarding safety is conflicting, and the long-term health effects of combustion-free nicotine products are not fully known and require further investigation. Public perception of electronic cigarettes is currently that it's equally or more harmful than combustible cigarettes, and that's really kind of increased substantially. So this used to be kind of something we viewed as very benign, but actually public perception is kind of shifting. And I think some of this is related to all of these news stories about the vaping-associated lung injury, a lot of them are with uh, THC-containing products, but there certainly is a lot of buzz about this that has some people very scared. You know, I've totally heard that. When I suggest to my patients they might use a vape as a smoking cessation tool, almost always they say, well, I've heard that's just as bad as smoking. Yeah, I think the evidence would probably point it's not. However, it's still not, like I, I tell patients, it's not like going for a run or eating a salad for lunch. It's it's not a healthy activity. It's probably like a, the lesser of two evils, which I think is what everyone keeps saying when we talk about them. While there are currently guidelines on best practices for smoking cessation of combustible cigarettes, there is currently no evidence-based recommendations to assist electronic cigarette users intending to quit vaping and it is unclear smoking cessation guidelines can be extrapolated to vaping products. To date, there are no studies on the efficacy of medications approved for smoking cessation by the FDA for aiding vaping cessation. So what do you think about this topic, Sonia? I think it's cool because we've really just been winging it so far for people who want to quit vaping. And I have used vaping as a smoking cessation method for some patients. You know, the delivery system is similar and the hand and mouth feel is similar to cigarettes for a lot of patients. So it works better than like nicotine patches. But I also see a ton of people get addicted to vaping and then they end up vaping and smoking and they have two habits they need to break. And because of the flavored vapes, I feel like it makes them a little more addictive and you can use your vape in a lot of settings where you can't smoke cigarettes anymore. And so vaping is actually more accessible to people 
And people now want to quit vaping. And I've just totally been winging it. I have not been using any evidence or data. So that's why I'm excited to see some actual data on how I should go about this. So the clinical question here is, what is the efficacy and safety of arenicline, one milligram BID, administered for 12 weeks and followed to week 24, combined with vaping cessation counseling and daily exclusively electronic cigarette users intending to quit vaping? So a little about this study. This is a double-blind, randomized, parallel group, placebo-controlled trial comparing the safety and efficacy of combining varenicline versus placebo with vaping cessation counseling on vaping cessation of 140 participants from April 2018 to September 2020. A little bit about how they recruited participants for the study. Eligible subjects were recruited from local vape shops, databases of people who previously smoked and attended local smoking cessation centers switching to electronic cigarettes from combustible tobacco. So that group that used vaping as a way of getting off smoking. Databases of people who previously smoked who took part in the COHERE-sponsored tobacco harm reduction and switching studies, social networks, what app chat of undergraduates and postgraduates of the University of Catania, and word of mouth from active study participants. Inclusion criteria was this was adults, so age 18 and older. They were exclusively daily e-cigarette users for at least a year. So this excluded anyone that was our dual smokers, which I think most of us encounter uh, in the office. They had at least one attempt at quitting vaping. They had a willingness to quit vaping. And they had to do a self-reported 50% reduction in vaping consumption between intake and the first date of the study. So this is a selection of a, selection of a very motivated cohort here. Exclusion criteria, current mental illness, any history of substance use disorder or chemical abuse in the past 12 months, no medical conditions that in the opinion of the investigator would preclude participation, currently breastfeeding or pregnant patients or patients that were intending to become pregnant or breastfeed during the trial. And they also excluded vaping products that didn't contain any nicotine. What was the intervention? 371 patients uh, respond to the request to be in the trial and they were screened for eligibility. And if they were deemed eligible at that first screening, they told them that by the time of their first visit, they need to at least reduce their vaping consumption by 50% on their own. To give you an idea, 371 patients were screened only and 231 were actually excluded from the trial. So a large percentage of people were excluded. At visit one, patients were reassessed for study inclusion. They were randomized to the study or control group, and baseline data was obtained. This baseline data had socio-demographic data, medical history, smoking vaping history. They assessed motivation for quitting. They assessed vaping and nicotine consumption patterns. They did an exhaled carbon monoxide level and ECO, blood pressure, heart rate, BMI, a Penn State electronic cigarette dependence index was obtained, a Beck anxiety inventory, a Minnesota nicotine withdrawal scale. They did a level of motivation to quit on a visual analog scale, and they did a target quit date was set within the next 10 days. The control group was a placebo pill and then weekly tobacco cessation counseling sessions. They did this for approximately 10 to 15 minutes once a week with a clinical psychologist. The intervention group received renicline. They did a five-day dose escalation protocol followed by 11 weeks and two days treatment with a target dose of one milligram twice daily. They also had weekly tobacco cessation counseling with these 10 to 15 minute sessions with a clinical psychologist. Participants were followed weekly for 12 weeks. 
And so at those weekly visits, they had uh, tobacco cessation counseling. They did a modified nicotine use inventory. They did an exhaled carbon monoxide level. They had blood pressure, heart rate, and adverse events were reported. At the end of each visit, they got a prepackaged study drug or placebo, and that was distributed for the following week. And they counted the last week. So they had kind of a measure of compliance. You know, not to get too much in the weeds, but there were a couple of, of differences too. like weeks four, six and eight. They were telephone visits only. So those were not in-person visits. So clearly the collection things were not done at that time frame. And week six, eight and 12, they did salivary continine levels. So after 12 weeks of treatment, participants were followed for 12 weeks of non-treatment up until week 24, where data was recollected, including modified nicotine use inventory. They did not exhale carbon monoxide level, BP heart rate, adverse event reporting. And they did another salivary continine collection at week 24. Any kind of questions so far about how they did this trial? It's not really a question, but you pointed it out a little bit that the inclusion criteria were very strict. I mean, I don't think, I might have a few patients who vape, but have no other substance use disorder, no tobacco use, really want to quit, able to cut down by 50%, you know, no, nothing else for the past year. I just don't think I have any patients in that group. So it's a, it's a limited group of really isolated vaping use disorder only. And then the treatment that they received just because they're part of the study was much more intense. You know, like we do have smoking cessation counseling available, but it's certainly not every week for 12 weeks. You know, it's like once, twice, an app, maybe if you're really lucky, four or five sessions, but that's like a lot more counseling than a lot of our people get. And of course, the people in the placebo group got the counseling also, but the whole intervention was in a more limited population and much more intense than I sort of see in clinical practice. So it doesn't like invalidate the question, but it does make me wonder if the results will be applicable to my people. I think the question's valid. I think that, you know, this is like we talked about this uncharted water. So I think kind of like a selecting a very discrete population that you are likely to be successful in is I think what they were trying to do here, right? To see if it had any effect. I certainly think that if you had this very select population and there was no effect, you probably, your clinical question is answered that probably extrapolating this to any other group would probably also not be useful. So I guess that's probably why they started with such a narrow target. So the primary endpoints were the proportion of subjects with continuous abstinence from vaping between weeks four to 12. And that was assessed by salivary continuity levels of less than 10 nanograms per milliliter, self-reported abstinence from electronic cigarette use. Secondary endpoints was proportion of subjects with continuous abstinence from vaping weeks four to 24, assessed by the salivary continuity level, in addition to self-reported abstinence from electronic cigarette use. They also did seven-day point prevalence of abstinence at weeks 12 and 24. The safety endpoint was adverse events and serious adverse events, which included death, life-threatening um, reaction, hospitalization, disability or incapacity occurring between treatment and randomization. Statistical analysis was a one-way ANOVA and Mann-Whitney tests for normally and non-normally distributed continuous data. They did a chi-square for categorical variables, and they did multiple logistic regression with covariate analysis for predictors of continuous vaping abstinence. Is this trial valid? So kind of here's my thoughts about it so far. There was external funding from GRAND, which is an independently reviewed competitive grants program funded by Pfizer, who who does produce Chantix. The author reported many competing interests. Just to name a few, they were a tenured professor at University of Catania, has received multiple grants from UBioPred, Airprom, Iris, Foundation for a Smoke-Free World, 
Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck Sharp and Dome, to name some. So lots of kind of grants and they say competing interests, although I did work as a research assistant prior to coming here at a large tertiary care center. And it's not uncommon for um, totally tenured professors to receive a large percentage of their baseline salary from grants from many of these organizations. So that's not like atypical. I don't want to act like this is an incredibly biased author. I think that's, that's very typical of academia. It was moderately sized, 140 subjects. It was double blind, randomized, a parallel group, placebo controlled. The placebos even looked exactly the same as the pill. So like if your friend was in the other group, the pills were the same size, shape, color, uh, which I think was pretty cool. Also, it's kind of refreshing to do a trial just because most of our addiction medicine articles we cover are like population studies and kind of like basically regression analysis. So this is this is different. Right. We're not doing like randomized control trials of, you know, giving people methamphetamine or not and like seeing what happens. So, yeah, it is it is nice to see an actual randomized control trial. I would kind of critique that the study population may not reflect the, quote, average e-cigarette user it's highly selective. 231 of the 371 candidates were excluded. Um, this was a highly motivated subpopulation. So they had high scores on the visual analog score of wanting to quit smoking. Also, they decreased their own smoking by 50% prior to the first follow-up appointment. So, like, you know, they, they were trying to do this on their own before the, the medication or intervention. Interestingly, I'll, I'll get to this. It's an adult population. This population is older than what I think would be my uh, average e-cigarette user. People were like in the middle aged and they were male for the most part. It was predominantly e-cigarette mono users, also not something I normally see. Most patients that I see, with the exception of maybe my college students, which is a different age group, they tend to be dual users. Data featured by the self-reported metrics. I like the fact they had compliance data on pill counts. And they did biochemically validated markers of tobacco and nicotine use. They did the cottonine, but also the exhaled carbon monoxide level. And if you're not kind of aware of those two, the salivary cottonine is a test for any kind of a nicotine-containing product, while the exhaled carbon monoxide really kind of lets you know whether it's combustible tobacco. So e-cigarette users should be positive for the cottonine, and they should be negative for the exhaled carbon monoxide. If you look at some studies at very high doses of uh, e-cigarette use, like at high concentrations, you could get a positive ECO, but that's not typical. So just for those of you that are not like tox people or, or know those markers that well. Unfortunately, you know, this was a randomized trial. However, baseline characteristics did vary between the study and the placebo group. So the baseline was different. The placebo group had higher baseline anxiety levels. And they had higher levels of e-cigarette dependence. And we'll talk about that in, in the slide here coming up. Data regarding cessation is limited to a six-month period, so this is only followed for six months. So, you know, I think that is probably pretty accurate for most kind of uh, tobacco cessation trials or nicotine cessation trials. But, you know, extrapolating this to long-term use, is this persistent? You couldn't do that from just this trial alone. What did you think, Sonia? I thought it was good, other than the somewhat limited inclusion and selection criteria. I mean, they definitely did the study well. I think this is the thing with any of course, smoking cessation trial, and this is very similar. It looks at like six months of time, but tobacco use is kind of a chronic relapsing thing for a lot of people. So you might quit for three months, quit for six months, quit for a year, and then you go back again, which doesn't say much about the efficacy of the original medication. So I think if it makes you quit for six months, basically you've quit, and then whether or not you relapse is like a different question. So I think it was long enough. Um, but yeah, I think it was valid, at least to tell you if it works kind of the same as it would in 
tobacco smoking. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, the last time we covered this about uh, for tobacco use with varenicline, the, the, the study was even shorter. I think the last one we covered was two months endpoint. So I, I think six months is is a pretty reasonable target. I don't want to be critical of that time frame. Yeah, and 12 weeks is a pretty good amount of time for the patients to be on varenicline. Like, I don't set a timeline for my patients who are trying to quit smoking. I say they can continue varenicline as long as they want. Um, but most if they haven't smoked in about three months, they do stop the medicine or even sooner. Like why take medicine if you feel like you've successfully quit smoking? There's no point in continuing it. That's what my patients would say. I say, well, you can keep it going if you want, if it helps with cravings, but I don't see a lot of people continuing it beyond three months if it's been successful. So results, let's talk about these participants first. So I said 371 patients or uh, participants were screened for eligibility, but only 140 of those were selected into the trial. The most common reason for exclusion was dual use. So they were also smoking cigarettes. 113 out of 140, that's 80.7% completed the 12-week intervention. 95 out of 140, that's 67.8% completed the 24-week follow-up visit. The mean age of this study was 52.6 years of age. So I think that like that's substantially different than what I think we see for a lot of our uh, e-cigarette users, at least I encounter on a day-to-day basis. A little bit of the background of those smokers, they smoke 10 to 15 cigarettes daily for a mean of 27.1 or 27.7 years from the two groups prior to vaping for at least 2 to 2.1 years. So basically, there's a long, long-term heavy smokers that use e-cigarettes as a way of getting off of combustible tobacco for the most part. All the patients had attempted to quit vaping at least once. They were highly motivated to quit. So the visual analog scale, like your 10-point like, where are you on this chart? Uh, they, they were eight or above. So, you know, very, very motivated, 10 being the highest motivation. The most common reason for wanting to quit was, quote, concern about the potential health risks of long-term e-cigarette use. And that was 72.9%. So the population was scared of, of using these long-term. They were well-matched in baseline characteristics with the exception of two things. The BECS anxiety inventory or index was higher in the placebo group than varenicline. It was 9.5 in the placebo group, six in the varenicline group, and that was statistically significant. Also, the Penn State Electronic Cigarette Dependence Index was higher in the placebo group than in the varenicline group, 14.9 versus 11.7, and that was also statistically significant. Results in terms of absence rates, so what we're really looking at here. So in terms of vaping absence rates, in terms of the biochemically validated continuous absence rates, not surprisingly, or what we would like to see, it was higher in varenicline than placebo at all time points. So week four to 12, it was 40% versus 20%, and week four to 24 was 34.3% versus 17.2%, and they were statistically significant. They did do some baseline evaluation for the week four to 12 points of the intervention time frame. And they actually tried to statistically adjust whether or not this was due to differences in baseline characteristics. And basically they say statistically it did not. Seven point prevalence of vaping absence was also higher for varenicline than placebo at each time point. Uh, week four was 41.4% versus 22.9. Week 12, 40% versus 20%. Week 24, 34.3% versus 17.2%, all statistically significant. So really, actually, this kind of tracks with the data that we see for tobacco use, right? Basically, using varenicline in this study, at least, for e-cigarette cessation, it kind of doubles your rate. And that's kind of what you see in most trials for 
tobacco use, it doubles or triples depending upon the study you see. So tracks relatively similar to previous data. Factors affecting abstinence rates. So they looked at what kind of affects abstinence from e-cigarettes in this trial. And the ones that came up that statistically significant were having a cohabitant vapor in your house. So someone else vaping in the house decreases your chance of success, which that makes sense. I hear that every day. And then having a higher Bex anxiety inventory score reduced odds of success. So, and that was also statistically significant. So anxious people that live with smokers, it does not favor your cessation. More adverse events occurred in the veronicaine group than the placebo group. Although I love studies like this because it was, it was a sugar pill, right? Or it was a total placebo. 246 patients in the veronicaine group reported side effects and 154 patients in the placebo group reported side effects. So um, very kind of strong placebo effect there. Adverse events rarely led to discontinuation. Only two patients discontinued in the veronicaine group and only one in the placebo due to side effects. The most common adverse events were nausea, flatulence, and abnormal dreams. Not surprised at all. I hear about nausea and abnormal dreams all the time. I've actually never had a patient tell me that flatulence was an, an issue for them with one of these medications. I was surprised by that one. And that was almost 7%. So 20% developed nausea, 7% flatulence, and uh, about 6.5% had abnormal dreams. Yeah, I definitely, I haven't had anyone ever tell me it's causing flatulence. Maybe they just don't notice. They just think they're extra gassy. And the abnormal dreams, everyone tells me that. I feel like that, like, I, I'm surprised at how low that was because I feel like everyone tells me that side effect, whether it's good or bad. Non significant weight gain occurred in all subjects. So 1.4 to 2.2 kilograms over the 24 week trial. This was kind of independent of intervention. Um, I think this just reflects the fact that if you quit smoking, there's going to be some weight gain. But let me stop you there, though. That's really interesting because I do think of, you know, smoking cessation and weight gain, but it hadn't occurred to me that vaping cessation would also lead to weight gain. Is it, I guess it's the nicotine that suppresses appetite or keeps you from eating or people eat more when they're trying to quit? I think it's one of the two. It's probably suppression of appetite. Um, but also we see this on the inpatient units, right? That people that are in early withdrawal from any other substance, they, they have this kind of they this dopamine surge and they start eating all these carbs and other foods. We it's not an uncommon thing to be reported. Dry mouth, sore throat, and cough was lower throughout the study with the Veronicrine group experiencing significantly lower rates than the placebo group. So like not surprising if you quit vaping at a higher rate, you had less sore throat, cough, and, and dry mouth. So those are all vaping-related side effects. So will these results help me in patient care? I mean, you know, I'm a PCP first and foremost in, in my career, you know, the topic of smoking cessation, vaping substitution and vaping cessation come up all the time. Uh, this is literally something I talk about at least two times a day with patients in my office. Like many patients, I view e-cigarettes as the lesser of two evils, but do have concerns regarding the long-term effects of this, which really we don't know that well just yet. I have had experience in the past using Varenicline off-label, and it's mostly been at the request of a patient. So a patient requested it, and they kind of pushed me to prescribe it for their e-cigarette use. And I'll be honest with you, I was not 100% comfortable the first time, but I have used it, case study of one, and it was unsuccessful the one time. But in the past, this has, has come up. You know, the study would suggest that it actually is safe for this indication, and it is effective, especially if you combine it with tobacco cessation counseling in a highly motivated population. I think the biggest thing is that, you know, unlike this study, most of my patients are dual smokers. So both tobacco that's combustible and e-cigarettes, although that might actually be a more of a reason to prescribe it than anything else now that I'm thinking about it in retrospect. 
I do think that moving forward, at least in my practice, people that have a, a strong desire to quit, I'll offer this as, an, as a possible option, just letting them know it's off label and there's limited data and see if they would like to kind of accept that. How about you, Sonia? Well, definitely after reading this article, I'll be comfortable using Clean for vaping cessation. You know, it's first line for tobacco cessation if you're trying to quit combustible tobacco. And so I'm very comfortable using this medication along with nicotine replacement, sometimes both together, you know, whatever the patient wants. But I think I'll definitely recommend it for vaping cessation. I, again, have very few people who just vape, but especially if you're smoking, then uh, it should help. I'm kind of curious to see, like, if you're really trying to quit and you go on Varenicline, it will be easier. Like you can drop the vaping, but you still smoke the cigarettes or you drop the cigarettes, but you still, you know, keep on vaping. I'd love to see some trial with people who are dual users, which one is kind of easier to quit. Yeah, I wish they had a, a third group in this that just did the counseling, right? I think that'd be a good barrier there to compare to, you know, to see what was the effect of that. That's pretty intensive counseling. Yeah, like once a week. Definitely there's effect of the medication, but I, I don't have many patients that are agreeable to counseling for any indication, but for tobacco, I don't think I've had one in, in years that has asked for a referral for such a thing. I have, and I've had people find smoking cessation, I don't know, not long counseling like this, but a few sessions with a smoking cessation, almost like a coach, kind of useful. You know, we have a psychologist in our office who does that service for people, and our St. Max's Health System has a nurse who helps people with smoking cessation. A lot of people have told me that one session was useful, even if it didn't totally make them quit smoking, they found it helpful. But yeah, the whole once a week for 12 weeks, a lot of my patients say they don't have time for that. I probably don't have time for that. But yeah, I think it was a great article. Yeah, thanks. I think it answered some questions for me at least. You know, we talk about practice changing articles, and this is definitely one because there really like was no practice before this. So any article at all would be practice changing for me. Yeah, it's funny, like, you know, like a study of one you know, that the amount of data in this in this area has just like gone through the roof, right? When there, there's nothing, the bar was set to so low. Right. Well, thank you for presenting that. Um, I did want to share a comment from one of our listeners. So Dr. Paul Vinsel on Facebook, he gave us a great comment regarding episode 26, which was about the survivorship model of addiction. So Dr. Vinsel said, I listened to this podcast yesterday as I was driving to work. I saw four patients in long-term recovery, two to five years, and I discussed this concept with them. They all brightened up and really liked it. One texted me later asking the name of it because she was discussing it with her mother. I think this really is a good way to think of those in recovery, whereas the chronic disease model fits well for those in active addiction. Thank you for your presentation and thoughtful discussion. And thank you, Dr. Vinsel, for being a listener. I'm really glad that survivorship model rang true for your patients and it really does ring true for me too. I've started, you know, as I see patients kind of come through my clinic, even in my own mind, I sometimes say, gosh, this guy really is a survivor. So yeah, I like that model too. I've been using it at least in my own head and maybe I'll start telling patients about it specifically. Yeah, I thought it was a kind of a perspective changing article. I like that a lot. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, join our Facebook group. There are a lot of ways to get in touch with us and the links are all in our show notes. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, 
produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. The Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.